You're listening to Dose of Depth Podcast. I'm your host, Deborah Lukovich, and I invite you to be curious about your unique experience of being human. In this podcast, we'll explore the deeper meaning of ordinary life experiences through conversation, stories, and education. You might have a serious aha moment, or you might just be amused by the movie your life seems to be imitating, or you might just be entertained by one of my awkward stories. I'm hoping you'll become more aware of those moments when a deeper part of you is prompting you to see things differently and maybe even go a new direction. So let's get started. In this episode, I bring back J.D. Edwin, who is a writer of fiction, both long and short, including numerous short stories and articles on the art and craft of writing. I've been to one of her workshops. J.D. describes herself as an avid fan of character-driven tales and unconventional love stories. Our first chat was a year ago, my very first interview on this podcast, just after J.D. had published her debut fantasy novel, Headspace. If you'd like to take a listen to that chat, you can find it in season one, episode two from February of 2022. The episode is titled Finding Your Personal Story in Bigger Stories. It was a really great chat. I loved Headspace, an alien game show, a deadly challenge. The fate of the world is on Astra's shoulders. Who can resist that? As a regular lover of science fiction, I felt like I was sitting in a theater as I hurriedly read through JD's book. Constant tension, no time to take a breath, urgency about saving the world without knowing exactly what that even meant, feeling like the butt of a joke. JD never missed a beat when it came to skillfully developing the characters and moving me through the story arc. Fabulous. If you like the film Divergent or the Netflix series Alice in Borderland, you'll love this book and want it to be made into a film series or an online series. I was already excited for the prequel. Depth psychology helped me realize why I've always loved science fiction. The genre is a sneaky way of communicating the complexity and depth of what it means to be a human being. The stories seem crazy, and if it's well done, the world building tricks you into absorbing images directly into your unconscious, getting around your mind, which only wants to affirm and confirm what it thinks it knows about the world. So even if you're just entertained, your unconscious is having a whole other experience and without realizing it, over time, subtle shifts sometimes occur in your thinking and belief systems. And sometimes there's this moment when writer and creative intelligence form a mysterious bond which allows something big, dramatic, and unexpected to emerge from the collective unconscious as if it's losing patience with humanity. In these cases, a significant number of readers or viewers of the film or book are impacted in a way that couldn't have been anticipated, and many come away with meaning that had not been intended by the writer or the filmmaker. Like, for me, the film Alien and Aliens, where Sigourney Weaver channels the dark side of the feminine. Personally, I felt empowered at watching Ripley kick alien ass. And now, J.D.'s prequel is here, Master of the Arena, which you can sum up like this. Nazmi Cole was born a slave. Now she's a champion. She intrigued. After our chat today about Master of the Arena, I know you'll want to get the backstory at some point. On the other hand, believe me, both books stand on their own. I'll be sharing the video version of today's chat on my YouTube channel, which you can get to via my website, DebraLukovich.com. So let's get started. 
Welcome back, JD. Why don't we start by having you catch us up on your life over the last year? What's happening with your writing and I guess your teaching and what are you intrigued about and passionate about? What projects are you working on and whatever you want to share? Cause you're also a mom. Hi, Deborah. Thank you so much for having me back. I am so honored to come back here on this great podcast and I'm so happy to see how much has grown. I'm so proud of you, how much you've achieved since we last talked. It's just so great to be back here. Thanks. So it's been a little over a year since we last talked. I've actually gone through some pretty major overhauls in both my life and my writing. I ended up having some mental health challenges last year and dealing with being overwhelmed, just having a lot going on. You know, it's been a pretty traumatic few years for most of the world, mm -hmm. really. But ironically, during that time, I ended up having sort of a mental and spiritual awakening and reevaluating my life during that time and my relationship with just writing and life in general. And I've been reading a lot of self-help books. Yours, when I read it last year, was actually one of the first ones I've read in my life. And after that, it actually set off this ripple of like reading books on spirituality and self-help, which I have never done in my life. The most recent one I read was uh, Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock, which was a really great one on um, accepting the state of your life and... Uh, just understanding what it means to be present. And it's been amazing. So between the self-reflection and the working on my mental health, I've also picked up some new hobbies. I crochet now, which I'm doing obsessively. I only crochet toys. I don't crochet anything wearable. So <laughs> there's nothing useful there. I just really enjoy it. But as far as writing goes, I'm still making it a priority. Because at the end of the day, that is something that's still very important to me. I released book two of Headspace, as you just mentioned, the prequel. And book three is coming this summer. And the big surprise is I'm actually deciding to write a fourth book. There's going to be a fourth Headspace. And I'm also teaching classes through the right practice. I'm teaching um, classes on book planning and productivity, and I'm working on a nonfiction book along the same lines that's going to be coming out this October, so I can pass on my limited knowledge of how to write fast and get books finished. I don't have a title set for that yet, mostly because my publishing team cannot, they don't like the title that I picked. <laughs> it was originally supposed to be called fast track your first draft but they didn't like that so now we're debating back and forth on what it's called but I'm very excited to share it so despite the challenges it's been a pretty productive year wow you're you're really inspiring plus you have a full-time job like you know at this point you're still working another job so uh I love it I admire you a lot and you know you what happened to you over the last couple of years really you know, goes to show the connection between mental health and creativity. And in a recent uh, interview I did with Bill Zafros, author of Poison Pen, uh, he really was very open about how the first draft of his book occurred 
decades earlier during a manic episode and before he was able to sort of even out uh, his bipolar through um, uh, through medication. So the unconscious wants to create and it speaks to us through symptoms like anxiety and depression and whatever that is. And and for those who sort of lean into it, there is this ultimate like unleashing of creativity that you didn't even know you were there. So I love that you shared that story. And I used to crochet when I was young. I made one of those afghans way back. I don't know. I think it was like 10 years old. So I love it's it. It's very mellow. It's yes. a very nice thing to do when you just want to take a break. It's therapeutic. And my daughter just picked up knitting and she, she, she really struggles with anxiety and it really helps her. It helps her it be does. present. Yeah. So, well, well, thanks for sharing all that. I appreciate your humility and your honesty. So let's dig in. Uh, for me, Headspace perfectly captured what it feels like for many people today, feeling trapped in a system that wasn't created by you and doesn't really benefit you too much. Any attempts to show displeasure are met with swift scolding, a kind of shaming, and behind the scenes, measures are being taken to entrench and enforce adherence to stagnant systems that benefit a few. So that's kind of general, but you can, you know, you can imagine uh, what I'm talking about. Of course, I'm a nerdy depth psychologist, so I can't escape my urge to find more than personal meaning in things. So why don't you just share, we're going to talk about Master of the Arena, but I really want to entice people to check out Headspace. So why don't you just share enough about Headspace to entice my listeners and just kind of to also entice people to go back and listen to our first chat. Um, you talked about your fascination with stories about ordinary people finding themselves in extraordinary situations. And some of the themes that are important to you have to do with prejudice and expectation and this hunger, this insatiable hunger for entertainment to be entertained and the sensationalism over kindness and safety. And so, um, so I, you know, listeners, readers, I'd love for you to, uh, you know, and viewers go and listen to that chat, but just share what you want to share about Headspace before we dig into your, to your current novel. So since we last talked, I actually got this really interesting review on Headspace. Mm. So this person actually gave me a pretty decent rating on the book. It was like a three and a half or four star rating, but they wrote this message and it was something along the lines of, they felt like the main character wasn't a quote-unquote outstanding enough person. Because if you might recall from the book, there are other characters who are better at playing the game in the book. And the main character is just this person. She's ordinary. She's trying to survive. She basically muddles through by being resilient and having some luck on her side. For me... That's what makes her special. But this re particular reviewer said, well, being the main character, she's the one who should really stand out. She's the one who should be the one that's good at the game. And she should be more like this other character who is like excelling at the game, but did not win. So I absolutely respect their opinion. And I get what, where they're coming from. But... If you think about it, this really demonstrates what I'm trying to convey of being trapped in a system and the expectations. There is a stereotype when it comes to books of this kind, books that are action and competition oriented. That is, the main character is somehow this special chosen person. And that's a very common trope 
especially in like science fiction and fantasy and young adult like the main character is this extra is this person who's above everyone else for whatever reason and sometimes there's no good reason and that's what people expect when they go into books like this but I feel like that's what sets my book apart because I prefer I prefer main characters who are ordinary because I feel like that relates to the readers so much better. Most of us are not special people. We are ordinary people. And we tend to wonder, well, if I was in this situation, what would I do? And that's what I was aiming for, is a main character who really is more like the reader who thinks, well, if I was in this situation, what would I do? And she was. She's an ordinary person in an extraordinary situation. She doesn't know how to handle the games. She doesn't know how to handle the attention. She doesn't know how to be the center of all this sensationalism happening around her. And there are other characters who do, but she is the every man. She is the every person, every reader. So at the end of the day, I think that's what makes her a special main character on her own. Well, oh, I love that you shared this because that review really shows that you are onto something and you are disrupting something. And it actually makes that person uncomfortable because for a very long time, there's the sense that we are going to be saved by someone special, yes. right? And actually, no one really is successful by themselves. It is the system that allows that sort of elevation of one person over another in combination with, it's very complex, right? It's not yes. way, one way. And uh, I love that. In fact, you can see that over the last 10 years starting to break down in even superhero movies yes. where all of the sudden, you know, the the enemy is not out there, it's within. So now there's like this clash between some of the Avengers against some of the other Avengers. Or I don't remember a recent um, movie that I that I saw, but part of it was this people really were trying to project onto a chosen one. And in the end, he refused to sit on the throne. He was like, no, this is about the people. And so I think there's like this desire to be saved when really this is the time when we have to do our own self-reflection. And it, and I recall my favorite young quote, which isn't exactly these words, but the essence of it is the fate of humanity depends upon the self-reflecting individual. So that. in a, yeah, in a way we're being called to no, we cannot project on to the chosen one, the savior. It's like no, or, or a, a certain God. It is no, like we have to step up and it's our, our turn to figure out how to expand consciousness of humanity. So, oh my gosh, that's, I love it. You're onto something and you're part of something. And whenever you get something that rubs somebody the wrong way, you actually are challenging them to really reflect about their own assumptions. Oh, I like that. And I like that. yeah, and that and that person actually by taking the time to share and articulate, it was a way of them processing their experience. And who knows how you, you know, sort of who knows? And their unconscious absorbs, uh, absorbs something that maybe, you know, went against like their assumptions, but now it's a permanent part of their unconscious. I like that. 
<laughs> yes, I love it. So, okay. Oh my gosh. So, um, I would like to talk about, um, oh, wait, wait. Okay. That was about headspace. All right. So on to master of the arena, it is a prequel. So you tell my listeners and viewers, what is it about and sort of lay out whatever you want to about the story and, you know, the characters involved just to give them a taste and entice them. So Master of the Arena is the prequel to Headspace. And I've actually discovered that this is how I like to write stories. I write one story and then I go back and dig into the roots of how it started. At the end of Headspace, you find out that the mastermind behind the game on Earth is actually somebody who survived the game in the past, which raises all kinds of questions. Like if this person went through all this trauma, and danger and risk their lives. Why are they doing this now? How can they not empathize with what's going on on Earth? Why do they continue to carry on the horrors that they experienced? Why are they so in this chaos to other worlds? And that's what Master of the Arena answers. In Master of the Arena, you start out by meeting Seven, who is only 13 years old when she won the games. And you learn how she leaves her home and takes up residency in the orb because her family had rejected her after the games. And in the first book, that there, there is implication that she is all powerful in control of everything in the orb because that's what Astro, the first main character, perceived. She only had a brief interaction with her and that was her perception, like, oh, this is the person in charge. But in this book, you actually learn that it's really complicated and everyone behind the games is, in addition, enslaved to another layer of people in charge. And you also get to meet some of the earlier champions who came before Seven who are in the orb and get to know them and how they ended up where they are. And there's a lot of secrets to the inner workings of the game that are reviewed in this book. And you get to see Seven go from this little timid child to somebody who eventually finds this new identity in herself and reason to gain power and control and how in that process she kind of loses a little bit of herself that made her more, it made her weaker, but also made her more compassionate. And in shedding that, she becomes a colder, more ruthless, but also more mature and powerful person that she is in Headspace. I love it. And you know, you just made me think of something when you said, I love to write stories where I just start here. Here's the story. And then I'm like, oh, but how do we get here? That's true. That is exactly what happens to us when we get to a certain point of life. And Carl Jung called this individuation, where all of a sudden there is a, how did I get myself here? And where we go back and we pull forward, uh, you know, the origins and roots of the ways that we think and the assumptions that we've made, and they just don't make sense anymore. So I love it. So, um, Let's talk about Seven some more because her character is amazing. Uh, and so the first thing I'll say is this book, Master of the Arena, is as fast paced as Headspace and the character development and world building are fantastic. So, you know, you guys won't be able to, you just have to read it because the aliens and these gods and orbs and all this stuff, it's fantastic. 
as usual, I experienced it as though I was in a theater watching it play out on a huge movie screen. So for me, that makes a really good story. Master of the Arena feels more personal, though, for me, which was interesting. It For me, it's a story of consciousness raising for seven. And the story arc feels like what I mentioned, the process of individuation, which is C.G. Jung's theory about the process of coming into relationship with our unconscious and our self and this sort of connection with something that transcends ourself. So, um, so I, I actually would be curious for people who read it to know which characters mirror back what certain pieces of them that are looking to be explored, where they might find themselves in the story and certain characters reside in their unconscious as unrealized potentials. So back to seven, seven is living a miserable life. She can't escape the class to which she was born. She's forever a slave to a system over she has no over which she has no control. She's kind of hopeless and accepts her oppression. Then she's snatched away and she's forced to fight to the death. And then she becomes a slave to new masters, demigods who are also slaves. As you say, there's the layers of um, being beholden to uh, other gods or other, you know, people who are ranked higher. And in the end, they just want to entertain themselves through forced, deadly planetary competitions, more being trapped, which maybe this is why it's personal, because I have an underlying fear of like being trapped in situations, which is why I have to do my own thing all the time. So Seven is forced, also the Seven is forced to leave her young child behind. And I thought that was a great metaphor for the need to leave your immature self behind as you journey through life. So as you have these challenges, we have these childish and naive views that we have to, we have to be forced to grow up basically. So immaturity means she's accepted her role in the system and now she has to grow up, but now she's in this new oppressive system situation. And what does it mean? And then there's this moment in the book where gosh, she wants to keep fighting against it, but then she stops resisting. And it's a beautiful moment because as she accepts this new situation, she's in, She's more calm and she can see clearly and she gains knowledge and she grows in wisdom and competencies that she wouldn't have otherwise been able to access. And this then fuels this new um, sense of purpose. So that's what seven means to me. So JD, tell me, tell me about the creation of seven. You kind of told us a little bit and like what she means to you and what you're hoping readers appreciate through her character and adventure. So, you know, something that you didn't touch on yet. So Seven turned out to be an unexpectedly complex character. Mm -hmm. She was actually built on one thing. Like I conceived her character on one thing, which is actually at the end of the Master of the Arena, where she forces champion Eleven, who defies her, to watch his own planet burn. And this was mentioned in Headspace, where he was talking to Astra, and he's talking about how they burned my planet, and they made me watch, and it was like this horrible, traumatizing, defining moment for him. And when I realized that she was the one who forced him to watch this moment, it made me realize that there's a story between when she was this weak little 13-year-old girl to the moment where she is so cruel that she would force a fellow champion to watch his world burn. So what happened in between there? So once I worked backwards from that defining moment, I realized that scene is what finalizes her transformation. And Master of the Arena is a story of how she gets there. And I wanted to be able to lay out and tell the story and the inner changes 
that took place because Headspace was mostly an external story. It is Astra trying to figure out the situation that she's in. But Master of the Arena is a lot of inner change. So it's definitely a more personal story. I would say that at the heart of it, Master of the Arena is about Seven finding what it means to have purpose for herself. When she's forced to leave her child behind, she loses a piece of her identity, which is her identity as a mother. And being someone who's so young, she doesn't have a lot to identify herself with. She's a slave and she's a mother. So it's very hard for her to deal with. And eventually she finds that identity again when she starts to adopt the newer champions under her wing. And she starts to feel like kind of a mother figure to them again. I had initially gone to this story thinking that Seven was going to be a person who was tired of not having control and that she was going to seek out power to make herself feel better, more empowered, more in charge because she's just tired of being powerless. But as I went along this story, I realized that it's always stronger. One's desire to do something is stronger when you're doing it for someone else. So in the end, her power comes from wanting to protect her new children because at her core, her identity is being a mother. That's what she remembers from her own life. That's what she connects with most. But her trauma from everything also warps her view. So she becomes a mother figure, but also becomes like the mother figure who raised her, the family that owned her. She had a mother figure there, but who was abusive to her because she was their slave. She was their property. So she kind of not only becomes a mother again, but becomes a mother that she didn't want to be to 11 when he wouldn't bend to her. So I think what I want readers to understand most from this book is that morality is complicated. Finding purpose and a reason to live does not automatically make someone right or wrong. And the relationship with oneself is it's just complex. It's multi-layered and it's constantly evolving. You brought up the mother wounds, the mother complex, and you know, there is a light and a dark side to the mother, the mother archetype, and you know, and and often, you know, the dark side of you know, the mother is to, you know, is to utilize the children to meet your own needs for, you know, feeling purposeful. Uh, and you can see that you can see her wrestling that wrestling with that in seven. Oh, that's more than, oh, people are going to really get different things out of this book. Um, so tell me a little more about some of the other characters, the supporting characters, the antagonists of the story that they force and also support her growth. And they're so they're complicated too, because you want to hate them in one moment. And you're like, Oh my God, that's like so abusive. And then you're like, you see these moments where they really are compassionate. Like, Oh, it's just good. Complicated is, is really a good theme for your story, which is that is what humanity is. It's complicated. Yeah. So, so the most significant supporting characters of this book are the other champions within the orb. And since she is number seven, there are six others that came before her. But not all of them are still around because I won't spoil too much of the book, but it's not all pleasant within the orb and things have happened to them. But my favorite champion, and this came really unexpectedly because I didn't think about this when I created them, 
is champion number two. And two has some similarities to seven in that they also got to where they are because they initially wanted to protect someone in the past. But the difference is things didn't go as well for them. So two ended up failing and landing in a situation where they're basically broken in their spirit and they've just given up and accepted the way things are and just goes where it makes them seem cold and sarcastic like they have a wall up all the time but really once you understand them you're like oh it's after what they've been through this is what they have to do to survive because this is a situation but when seven eventually does take over a two gets kind of another chance at this life that they're in so the book the readers will get to see how that turns out the other champions who came after seven are also very important because champions eight nine and ten are each in their own ways the children that seven adopted and they're the reason that seven has a new purpose and that drive to buck her position and to change things but the antagonist, the real antagonist of the book that I'm trying not to spoil, but it's a very complicated thing. It's the book starts out with a lot of implication that the champions are under the heels of the demigods who serve the gods. And there's no way out of that. But at the end, within a twist that I won't spoil, you actually find out there is someone unexpected pulling the strings and it this is what makes Seven's victory at the end very complicated because she won, but she didn't win what she thought she did. And it all goes back to having a purpose. She is trying to find her purpose. And there's another person all along who had their own purpose to serve. And it just makes you realize nothing is simple. It's like you said, people are not simple. And I base these characters as much on people as I can because people are complicated. Well, you intuitively have a kind of understanding and appreciation for complexity and the fallout of complexity and, you know, a, a kind of compassion that that is rare. And, and also the book while you are getting at these deeper things you can totally just read this book at a very surface level and just enjoy it it is a fantasy novel and some of these thoughts might not occur to you at all like i said your unconscious is going to do what it wants with as you read it but it is just a really enjoyable entertaining novel and story as well but what's so rich about it is different different people are different things are going to speak to different people. So there is opportunity to go like very at a deeper level, if that's what you want. And so for people, some people will really, well, I think, yeah, I, it's, it really is. a. I just love it. <laughs> I, I lose words to talk about it. So, okay. Another, uh, I guess it will call image a character an image is orb. And so I wonder it's prevalent in the story. And I wonder if you can talk about what this image means for you and what it represents or, you know, sort of the role it's playing in the story. I would personally really like circular images. I find the shirt circle shape to be a very 
satisfying shape. It's self-containing. It's perfectly balanced. But I've also found that on a more abstract level, I like to tell stories in a circular mode where characters somehow end up where they start in some form or fashion. Like in Headspace, at the end, when the game is over, when she's been through all she's been through, Astra returns to her home that she was in. But she finds that everything has changed because after what she's gone through, her perception of everything has changed. And she now has new people in her life and new views of the world. So even though she's back where she started, she herself has changed inside. And Seven starts out as a slave. She struggled, she gained power, she rose, but at the end, in a way, she's back to where she started. It's just she is now a slave in a completely different way. She is a slave to a different master. And there's also some appeal for me of the orb paralleling planets. And that's actually something that's going to come up in book three, is that the orbs are capable of creating many worlds in themselves. So in a way, it's like this visual of a planet within a planet. So for me, that's just something super interesting to think about. Even in the beginning of the book, there's, I can't remember which character is saying to, to Seven that uh, your world has changed. And it also represents this moment in individuation when you begin to self-reflect and self-explore and challenge your assumptions and you know and belief systems and you now see what you couldn't see before you can never go back you can't be blissfully ignorant now and so you have to make a choice about how to move forward you just so part of it is like this it's a death a death of a way of existing and you grieve it because you're like, no, no, I don't want to see this. No, because now I have to rise to the occasion. Right. But then, but then really it's liberating at the same time uh, as you find this new sense of purpose. So um, yeah, I mean, yeah, your story again, I think one of the reasons it's just so powerful is that, you really are able to bring these archetypal human experiences to life in a different way, in a way that is, um, it's, it's not obvious. And so it really just does work on, on your unconscious. So thank you. Um, your story also explores the, for me, the fluid nature of what God is and how God is represented it represented and what God wants. And there's lots of gods in the story. And it seems to me that, well, God is unknowable. And as soon as someone pretends to know what God wants, they've kind of spoken against God. So in my view, anyway, in your story, there's gods and demigods and some rank above others. And some gods are slaves to other gods. And in the end, the top gods or gods simply seem bored and entertain themselves by manipulating and influencing worlds to hurry along humanity's potential self-destruction. So it's like, well, let, let's just see what, let's just see, let's prompt them, let's prod them, let's see what happens. And, 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 ooh, ooh, they're destroying themselves. Like, oh, it's like watching an exciting movie. And I love it. For me, it really reveals, for me, the weak-mindedness of too many people who are just really easily swept up by rigid ideas that simply let them off the hook. 
for their own self-reflection and, you know, responsibility and, and other people, other people just are not able to break out of their own oppression. So, you know, what about that? So becoming more conscious and working on behalf of the collective, in my view, is for the brave, only brave people do it. And they'll rarely be recognized for it. And what drives people who work on, you know, work on behalf of the collective is really mysterious. It's just their purpose. So your book, like I said, is super entertaining and can totally be enjoyed as just an entertaining respite from real life. And, but it also captures this deeper and important, these other issues with which we wrestle uh, with today. So um, what else do you want to say about it? Well, the concept of gods has always been kind of different for me. I've always teetered somewhere between atheist and agnostic. And growing up in China, there's not a lot of religious people. Like religion is not a common part of life as it is in the U.S. I grew up reading a lot of fantasy and folklore, all of which includes a lot of what you would call gods, mystical figures. So I always regarded as a child, gods as fantasy characters. And then to come here and see people take Christianity so seriously as part of their everyday life, it was a very interesting juxtaposition between the two. So ultimately, I started to develop an interest of how God is interpreted by different cultures and different fiction. For me personally, if there is a God or gods, then we can't possibly know what they look like or how they function because they would exist in a way that is so different from us that we cannot comprehend it. So to say that they would look or act like us seemed like kind of a narrow-minded way to think about it. So in my but I still like this idea of we are somehow created in the image of gods, which is what I do in my books, that we are created in their image, just not how we think of it. They created us to mirror their sensationalism and their desire for entertainment, not how they do or act. They just gave us their worst traits in a way. So it's another version of we are just like God. And I prefer to think of the idea of gods in vague and unknown terms in my story, because I feel like that's more accurate to how we really understand. In Master of the Arena, there is some direct interaction with the gods, but even then, it's never made clear how exactly the gods function. Like, are they gods? Are they supernatural beings? Are they aliens? Or do they just simply exist differently from us so we don't understand them? The same way characters in a video game would not comprehend the programs that goes into them. So we just don't understand it. Maybe that's all it is. So as a result, the characters in the gods in my book do not communicate clearly. The gods send their messages in a way that the characters can interpret. And everybody just kind of follows along with their own interpretation of it. And that mystery is what I feel like relates most realistically to our own relationship with God. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, this is one of the tasks today is that this notion of what our relationship is to 
source to creative intelligence, to the divine, to whatever transcends us and envelops us is changing. And that I feel like we're being pushed to really self-reflect without, you know, without being controlled by other people's interpretations of it. And, and that's also threatening. So as you, and there will be a counter sort of digging in to the rigidity as there's expansion of uh, a more expansive notion of, or openness about actually accepting that we don't know and not knowing is really uncomfortable for our minds and our ego. And that is, you know, the unconscious calls us in a mysterious way and it can be terrifying to really have these thoughts and to detach from this knowing or this framework that, and it's part of individuation where we begin to, we begin to question our own beliefs and we may walk away um, with, stronger beliefs, but they're more informed beliefs, or we may totally be like, oh my gosh, I was so wrong about that and have new beliefs. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, again, you know, the orb in this fantasy novel is just can be really pure entertainment, but I, I just, I really appreciate the deeper attention and really your own consciousness of what is being communicated through your story. And when I talk about this moment, this bond between the writer and just sort of creative intelligence, that's your allowing to flow through you and that, you know, at the end of the story, you created it in partnership with something, with something that was bigger than you. And then it, you know, it can touch people in really unexpected ways. So, um, I, uh, talking about it makes me want to read it again. Because I really did enjoy it, but we, but it's been so much time since that book came out that I felt bad that I couldn't remember the the whole story, but now I want to read it again. And I think I probably have new thoughts and feelings about it. So can you give us a little teaser and a taste of the last in the trilogy? And then also, is there a place where people can like get on the list to find out when it's going to be launched and when they can buy it? And of course, I'll have you back again. And also, are there ways that people can support you, support you in your writing, uh, keep in touch with you? Do you have ways that you can you can communicate with um, people who really appreciate your writing? And then, and then, of course, I'll put links to everything that you want to share in the description box. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I'm very excited about book three. It is in its final editing stages right now. It is the sequel to Headspace, but it's not a direct sequel. Basically, um, it's going to be very much standalone, just like Master of the Arena was. And a lot of time has passed since Headspace and things have changed. In fact, the gods are no longer around. They have disappeared, which leaves the demigods and the champions of headspace at odds with each other going to war. So a lot of the old favorite characters will be back. Astro will be back. So will Seven. And so will most of the old champions that are, that are mentioned in both books. It's a very nuanced book that's going to pull the first two together. And I'm actually really proud of myself for making this plot work because it is so complicated. It took so much time to untangle all the layers and all the plot points. 
Uh, I will be releasing ARCs soon. And in case your listeners are not aware, ARCs are free copies that go out to people before release so that they can get their reviews in early. To get on the list, they just have to email me at author at jdedwin.com and express that they'd like to read or punters, which is book three early. In fact, as a bonus for your listeners, if they email me and say that they heard it from the Dose of Depths podcast, I will send them books one and two for free in PDF format. So they can email me at author and jdedwin.com. And if they go to my website, jdedwin.com, they can also sign up for my newsletter. Oh, terrific. Awesome. And thank you for offering that little gift for uh, for my readers and listeners, viewers. So awesome. So uh, thank you, JD, for a fun conversation, again, about an entertaining story that offers deeper meaning for those who are into self-reflecting about their place in the world. Uh, and yeah, just thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. It's been so fun. Yes. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with J.D. Edwin, author of Headspace and Master of the Arena and a new book that's coming. Links to her books are in the description box, and you might want to go back to season one to listen to our first chat about Headspace. Remember, our soul, our unconscious speaks to us in many ways to get our attention and prompt us to explore something deep inside. And this includes books of all kinds. At the right moment, reading or watching the right story, a new insight, a new connection might arise that could change your day or the trajectory of your life, aside from being entertained and getting a break from the daily stress of life. I'll also include links to a chapter from my soul book about Jungian film theory, which includes many stories of how I made sense of parts of my life through film experiences and links to a couple blog posts about my reflections on some films. Until next time. I'm your host, Deborah Lukovich, and you are listening to Dose of Depth Podcast. To get updates on new episodes, my writing, and how I teach my clients to get to know that deeper part of themselves, go to DebraLukovich.com. Oh, and if you're not ready for a coach, learn what my clients know in my book, Your Soul is Talking. Are you listening? Five steps to uncovering your hidden purpose. You can check it out on my website or get it on Amazon.